It's always a great time for a great love story, isn't it? We love love stories in our country. Uh, one of my uh, grandfather's uh, favorite love stories uh, was uh, the love story of uh, Glenn Miller, depicted by Jimmy Stewart. And uh, uh, he loved that watch, to watch that movie. Of course, there's other great love stories uh, that have been on the silver screen. Shakespeare and Romeo, uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Oh, that, that one's a little bit creepy if you think too hard about it. Uh, uh, of course, one of the cl great classics of the 80s, the era of the romantic comedy, was Sleepless in Seattle, right? Everyone loved Sleepless in Seattle, uh, especially the Washington guys. Okay, we love that movie. Um, but in reality, what many of these romantic stories portray is the highly charged emotional thrill that goes hand in hand with the cat and mouse chase. That's what Hollywood depicts as love. Uh, we call dating or courtship. Uh, that's that's uh, that cat and uh, mouse chase that, that everyone loves to talk about. Our culture, in our culture, we often associate the feeling of falling in love with real love. But this is dangerous. And it's dangerous for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, as we get to know someone, uh, he or she is showing interest in us, and there's that euphoria that goes with that. Oh, I think that person likes me, or no, that person, uh, I don't know if they really like me or not. And, and you know, it's kind of a junior high-ish type of, of feeling, or maybe a high school uh, sort of feeling. Uh, but we get that euphoria, uh, and after you've been with that person for a while, you may very well ask yourself, uh, now what am I going to do with this person, right? That euphoria is gone. In our culture, we set up all sorts of expectations about marriage and relationships. Uh, many times set in the context of this euphoria. When those expectations <coughs> excuse me, are not met, it leads to marital dissatisfaction. And when marital dissatisfaction enters the marriage, it can cause the marriage to begin to dissolve. And a person may begin looking elsewhere to find another place to meet that satisfaction. This, however, is not the biblical example of love. That Hollywood, cat and mouse chase, that euphoria that we see in the movies. We do find a love story in the biblical text. In fact, we find many true love stories in the biblical text. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at one of those. Uh, and this love story actually isn't between a man and a woman. It's between David and Jonathan, uh, two close friends. We find this story, at least in part, in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, please be turning to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, and as you turn over there, I want us to think about the formation of their relationship. I want us to think about the example of selfless love that we see in this story. And I want us to think about the lesson of love that we see in this story. So let's think about the formation of this story. Really, this relationship is formed uh, when David comes from, from fighting Goliath. Uh, and we see Jonathan for the first time. So I, I know I told you we were going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20, but if you turn back just a couple pages to chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 uh, and 3, you begin to see this relationship. Okay, Chapter 17, David kills Goliath. He's just a young man, described as one having a ruddy appearance. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, that is when David had finished speaking to Saul, 
that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And so we see this beginning of this connection between David and Jonathan. It's just described as a love relationship. What kind of love is this that these two men had, that these two young men had? There's a few that argue this is an example of God's acceptance of homosexuality. But I don't think that that is an accurate demonstration of what Scripture is teaching us here. It's claimed that the word for love here can mean, can mean sexual love. And while it's true it can include sexual relationships, it's not limited to those. In fact, it's widely used in the Old Testament for all sorts of relationships that clearly would not include those that are sexual in nature. For instance, when we look in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, uh, we're told uh, that the people of Israel were to love each other and to put, each other, put others above themselves. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The same Hebrew word for love is used there as is used to describe their relationship between David and Jonathan. So clearly the word does not have to mean a sexual relationship or a sexual love. Uh, and in many cases in the Old Testament, it does not. And with Jonathan and David, uh, there's not much else that would support that. Bowers, or excuse me, Brown, Dig, Diver, and, and Briggs, uh, in their lexicon of the uh, Hebrew language, uh, say that 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 and verse 3 is an example of those that do not depict a sexual relationship, and they highlight that in their lexicon. Is there any other any other context or anything else in the context that would include or suggest a, a sexual relationship? No, not that we see. A little bit later on in the text, as David and Jonathan are, are about to depart in a, in a crisis situation, it says uh, that they, they kissed each other. And that's strange to us. And we think, well, yeah, that sounds pretty much like a homosexual relationship to us, until we remember that in many Mediterranean cultures, even today, people will greet and depart each other in that way. I had a, a chance to travel to, to Italy uh, on a mission trip many years ago. And that's how people greeted each other, men and women, and, you know, give each other, you know, a kiss on each cheek, you know. Uh, that's very strange to us in America. We don't do that, right? Uh, we might slap somebody if they did that, uh, right? But in Italy, in the Mediterranean world, that's very common. And, and that's likely the, the context. You know, Jonathan and David, as, as close friends in that context, uh, are... are saying their goodbyes to each other in a very dire situation. In fact, as we uh, look at the story of David throughout the book of First and Second Samuel, we find that David's going to marry, uh, well, really, multiple women. Uh, he seems to have a, a proclivity that way uh, and uh, no hint of homosexuality in David's life. We don't see uh, much after Saul's death. Um, where we don't see much between this point and Saul's death uh, and Jonathan's death in which would hint of any sort of, of sexual relationship. Instead, what we see is Jonathan uh, honors David uh, as a warrior, and he sees him as a man of war, and he's knit 
to David's soul, so to speak, because of his bravery and because of his reliance on God. The text says that his soul was knit, or literally, in the text, in the Hebrew text, knotted together. There was something that Jonathan saw in David that was so essential to him that he felt a great affection for David. What was it that caused Jonathan to feel this way? Perhaps the basis was the fact that they were both great military leaders, military men. Uh, David, here as a young man, taking on Goliath. But in chapter 14, 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 1, we see Saul and Jonathan together, uh, and Jonathan's described as a, as a commander of units, and he goes off uh, down a ravine and up the other side to attack a, an outpost of the, of the Philistines, acting in a very brave manner. Uh, and in fact, in that context, as we'll see again in a minute, Jonathan tells his servant, God can save by few or God can save by many. And so that's kind of Jonathan's mindset. It's not all that different from David's mindset. And so Jonathan was linked to David. And we, see, we don't see Jonathan in the story of Goliath until we come to chapter 18 and verse 1. We wonder if he was around <coughs> King David, or, or excuse me, King Saul, when David comes in, in chapter 17 and verse 30, and tells Saul, I can take this guy out. Remember, the people bring David to Saul, and they say, here's this young man. He says that he can go and take care of Goliath. And Saul has a conversation with him there in that context, chapter 17, verse 30. Uh, and he says, you're too young. You can't do this. And David says, look, I killed the bear. I kill, killed the lion. I've, I've taken care of sheep, and I can take care of this guy too with the help of God. If Jonathan is there at the end in chapter 18, verse 1, in his father's tent, is it possible that he was there as David comes in the first time in chapter 17, verse 30, and he hears David's voice and hears David's faith, this young man willing to take on this giant that nobody else is willing to take on? Something drew Jonathan to David. When we compare the valor of these two men, Jonathan and David, they both say the Lord will save, whether by few or by many. And as a result, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. So as we come into chapter 18, we look at the difficult situation that's going on with David. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, or excuse me, chapter 20, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 1. So David fled from Naoth to Ramah, and he came and said, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father, that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it, that you, should, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without discussing it, disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. He has said, do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. And so Jonathan and David have this conversation, because David knows at this point it's clear to pretty much everybody that Saul is jealous of David and wants to have David killed. 
And Saul evidently knows the close connection between David and his son Jonathan. And so David comes to Jonathan and he says, what have I done that your dad wants to kill me? And Jonathan says, what are you talking about? My dad doesn't want to kill you. Well, yeah, he does. Ah, my dad tells me everything. Well, he doesn't tell you this because he knows how close we are. And your dad is going to do everything he can to kill me. I am close to death. And so they begin to make a covenant. Look at verse 12, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling towards David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made a vow, made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. So there's a two-part covenant here. One part of the covenant is that Jonathan is going to find out from his dad, are you really going to try to kill David? And when he makes that apparent to Jonathan, Jonathan's going to go and let David know that. Now, Jonathan still doesn't buy it, really, that Saul wants David dead. And so he says, look, if I find out my dad's not going to kill you, I'll come back and I'll tell you that, won't I? He says, but if he, if, he, if he does intend to kill you, I will let you know that as well so you can depart and be in safety. But Jonathan is aware of what the consequence of that is, which is that even though Jonathan is the rightful heir to Saul's throne, what this eventually will mean is that he won't get to be king. David will be king in his place. And so he says to David, and if that's the case, then promise me for your part of the covenant that when you become king, you'll watch out for my family. That is for Jonathan and Jonathan's children. And so they make this agreement. And did you notice what the text said? They made the vow because of the love that they had for each other. Verse 17. Folks, this is a true love story. Not in the sense of a romantic love between a man and a woman, but it depicts for us selfless love. And it's selfless love on the part of Jonathan. Because Jonathan gets to be king. That's the plan, that he gets to be king. And here's the person that's going to take the throne away from his family. And yet he's saying, even though I know you're going to take the throne away from my family, I'm going to do this to protect your life because I love you that much, David. Can you imagine that? None of us is a king today. I dare say that none of us in this room will ever become a king or a queen. 
of anything. We don't know what it's like to have that kind of authority, that kind of power. And yet Jonathan has that power, and he has that authority, and he is selflessly saying to David, I will protect your life. And not only is he willing to selflessly protect his life, but he's doing that not only at the, at the cause of losing the, the throne himself, but at the risk of losing his own life. Look at verse 30. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30. Jonathan has this conversation with his dad. Find out what happens. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a, of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down, so that Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and he did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. This section is loaded with realistic, true, selfless love. Jonathan gets an earful from his dad because his dad says, don't you realize that as long as this guy lives, you're not going to be king. And you're worthless because you're putting your friendship with David above your family and above the, the throne of, of our family. And Saul, Saul is angry with Jonathan, so much so that he gets a spear and he throws it at his own son. Many of us in this room are parents. We know what it's like to be angry with our children. How many of us have gotten a spear out and thrown it at our kids? And did you notice in the text it said to strike him down? Folks, Jonathan or Dave, Saul wasn't just trying to scare his son. He was trying to kill him. He was trying to kill him because of the close bond between David and Jonathan, so close that Jonathan was willing to spare David's life rather than save his friend. And Jonathan gets up in anger. And did you notice what the text says? Yeah, he's there angry that his dad's out to get, out to get his son. And it says he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. I can't imagine being a prince, waiting for my kingdom. And I am so selfless that I'm more concerned about the friend who's going to take my place and take my kingdom than I am for preserving my own kingdom and my own authority, my own power. How many of us would put ourselves in the same position? How many of us are too upset about who gets to control the clicker for for TV tonight. 
How many of us are too concerned about what we're going to do on the weekend? How many of us are too concerned about uh, whatever power struggles are in our lives or whatever little kingdom we want to protect? Jonathan's talking about ruling a kingdom. And he loves his friends so much that he puts his friendship above his kingdom and his authority and his power. That is selfless love. And so they make this covenant together. And of course the story is, is that Jonathan goes out and he uses the prescribed signal to let David know that he needs to flee. And they get together. They hug it out. They kiss it out. Again, kind of creepy for us today, but in that culture that would be fine. And he goes away. What's the lesson of love here for us? This example of selfless love is because at different times in the relationship, both David and Jonathan faced overwhelming pressure, overwhelming forces beyond themselves to seek their own interests. And they don't do that, especially in this story, Jonathan. And many today view marriage, view, uh, view marriage life as, as, as going too grand. Love will just override any problem, we say, right? When people are young and they're about to get married, they have that feeling of euphoria. Uh, they don't really think about who they're marrying. A lot of times, well, love will get us by. You know, there's even songs that tell that story. Love, you know, will find a way or whatever, right? Uh, and, and they think there's never going to be any conflict. There's never going to be any problems. Because it, the world associates love with just that euphoric feeling. But that's not what biblical love is. Biblical love is selfless love. And that's the message that we see in the story of Jonathan and David. In our culture, we seek a, a, a love or a marriage with expectations based on that cat and mouse euphoric game that we talked about earlier. And reality is life is not always easy. There are crises that we face in life. There are problems and struggles and conflicts that we face in life, whether it's our marriages, whether it's our, our friendships, whether it's other relationships that we have. And if we don't have biblical selfless love, when those conflicts arise, when those challenges arise, when those crises arise, it's easy for us to just split. I don't have to deal with this. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And so the relationship dissolves and goes away. Because neither party is thinking selflessly. Neither party is thinking in love. Because that's not what we've been taught by Hollywood and by the music industry. Things hit us that make decisions tough. Do I seek my own or my spouse's interests? The world teaches us you must be happy. Look at yourself. If things get hard, break the covenant. Now think about that for a second. What if Jonathan and David had broken their covenant together? They both maintained their covenant. When Jonathan finds out that his father Saul really wants David dead, he <laughs> leaves the, the dinner table. And he doesn't come back to the dinner table with his dad. He goes out and tells David, get out of town. He is going to kill you. Many chapters later, after Saul and Jonathan die in battle, 
David keeps his covenant with Jonathan, and he takes care of Jonathan's sons because he made this covenant, and he loved Jonathan. And you know what? That was a danger to David because that meant there was a segment of Saul's family always living in Israel who said, hey, that throne is rightfully ours. But you see, the world teaches us today, hey, if you're not happy, you, you can break that covenant. You can break that agreement. Just go find somebody new. Find someone else that's going to make you happy for 20 minutes. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is that selfless love. And crises can hit in a number of ways. Crises can be financial. They can be a serious illness of a, of a child. Uh, it might be problems with intimacy. It might be natural disasters. It might be any number of stressors that impact our lives. And pressure may cause us to want to consider our own desires above that of our spouse. Commitment to selfless love says rather than seek your own, you seek what is right. Even though that may mean personal risk to you. Rather than seek your own, you seek what is right. If both spouses hold that commitment, they'll have a good relationship. They'll have a stronger relationship. Think about the expectations that people enter marriage with. This is a good lesson for our young people. So those of our young people that are in the room this morning, I hope you will listen to this. When you get to that point, when you start thinking about marriage and dating and, and all of those things, you need to think about what your expectations ought to be. What is the basis of your values that guide your life? David and Jonathan shared a great faith in God, and their behavior that they had together was based on their, their own relationship with God. There's more to making a relationship work than, than that ooey-gooey euphoria, or common but more importantly, the common values that you share. You need to ask yourself, does this person share the values that I have? You need to know the person inside and out. What are their expectations for gender roles, for instance? Meaning, what do you expect your spouse to do as a person of the opposite gender? What expectations do they have of you as someone of the opposite gender? What are your financial goals? What are your views of child rearing? What are your goals in terms of the type of lifestyle that you'll live? All of these are questions that you need to ask yourself. And, and if you enter that marriage having discussed those things and having a common set of values and expectations, life will be much better for you. If those are things you never discuss, you may find yourself in a difficult situation. The example of selfless love is love that is committed to the other person regardless of yourself. That's the commitment. Today, our young people are going on an excursion where they are going to go through an activity that teach them, teaches them team building and figuring things out, how to work as a team. Part of that is selflessness. Because if you get in a situation and you're just trying to, to suit yourself or meet your own goals or do your own thing or, or carry out your own idea, you may find out that that doesn't work. But you need to be committed to each other. You need to have a, 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 a willingness to listen and to work together. 
and that's a selfless commitment. But sometimes put your own ideas behind and listen to someone else. Biblical love is not Hollywood love. Biblical love is that selfless love that says, even though there's a great risk to myself, or even though I'm putting my own ideas away for a while, I'm still committed to loving this other person. That's the kind of love that God calls us to have. If you're here this morning and you want to be blessed by the selfless love of Jesus Christ, the selfless love that said, I'm going to leave my throne in heaven to come and die on the cross so that you might have eternal life. And you want to be united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism so that you can have that eternal life. I want you to do that now, together with Pam and Sam.